Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever your needs, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbin Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers. Okay, uh, got it down to top three. I'm not sure why you need this information, but uh, my favorite sandwich. This notorious sandwich, pane con milza. I bloody love a sandwich. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I love making them, love eating them. The spleen which is actually the only ingredient. It's so tender and it's not heavy as, at all. It's very sour and lemony. I'd fry it in a pan with loads of butter. Loads of buttery goodness, melted cheese. That'd be lovely. Freshly cut uh, turkey's pepper, green. You know, the ones that they are not spicy, but they are trying to be. The bacon would need to be smoked and be a streaky bacon. Very simple, but absolutely delicious. Aged, uh, graviera, cheese, and you grate. I should say Cretan, but uh, I'll be honest, and I prefer Naxos Island. For me, a sandwich is something I would eat, or this particular sandwich is something I would eat on a Sunday, and it would be brunch time, and ideally it would be in the summer, and I'd have the the back of the house, the doors open rather, and you'd hear the sounds of the garden, which I've got a pond and the waterfall, so it'd all be very relaxing. Mm. Yeah, it's a good sandwich. Little snack, little merendina, after you've had a nap. It was a warm, sunny, early summer day. I think it was about June. It's been 10 or 12 years now. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, it was quite a while ago. 
yeah, so it's history. It's not ancient history, but it's history. And um, my wife uh, was sat um, on a bench in central London, in Holborn. And uh, she was eating her lunch, a sandwich, a homemade sandwich by me. I make lunch for both of us. Next to her, there was sat an Italian couple, a man and a girl. And um, while Emma was unfolding her homemade sandwich, they were eating their lunch too. And it was uh, some sad, plasticky supermarket out of a packet. Cold and lame and just, just sad looking. And basically, they were looking at her, they were observing her sandwich, and at some point the man asked <laughs> my wife, where did you get this from? And obviously, my wife said, uh, that, sorry, my husband made this. They looked at each other, full of sadness, and proceeded eating their little crappy supermarket sandwiches. Of course, I found it uh, hilariously uh, satisfying at the time, when my wife told me after, afterwards, when she came home in the night. And um, it goes to show that people can see a good sandwich from a bad one, and people eat sandwiches regardless, because they're convenient. And on this episode today, we're going to try and delve a bit into the history of sandwiches, the myths and the facts, and what are the best feelings for a sandwich. Alongside, we will investigate the rise of the supermarket sandwich, especially here in the UK, and the significance of uh, this handy on-the-go snack and meal in the past centuries or millennia. I'm Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure. Who was the first person who put a piece of meat or a piece of cheese between two slices of bread or between two flatbreads or anything else really and made the first uh, sandwich, the first concoction of what we call sandwich anyway nowadays? Do we have any evidence from uh, the ancient world, I wonder? Or, as it is the case with uh, many of these things, uh, was there something special there to be discovered other than convenience? It should be really something that um, everybody did it. I don't think there was... Um, I don't think we can attribute uh, this to a specific person, to be honest. But, for sure, we have to consider the first written evidence and the first um, mention of someone making something like that. So the first um, reference really to a sandwich-like concoction, at least in our Western European slash Middle Eastern history, would go to Hillel the Elder, a Jewish sage and rabbi who founded the tradition of the Passover Seder. Hillel the Elder was born on the 1st century BCE, and he was active uh, during the f- years around there, uh, from 30 BCE until 30 CE. So roughly around the 1st century AD, and what it was called Koresh, if I'm not pronouncing it completely wrong, uh, which is taking two pieces of soft matzo bread and placing between them part of the Paschal lamb, which is the Passover roast lamb, bitter herbs, and eat them as one. And this sandwich apparently refers to a traditional soft matzot rather than modern crisp matzot, and so would have borne a striking resemblance to a modern shawarma. 
Of course, there are many questions here. When is a sandwich a sandwich? How can we define a sandwich? And uh, is there a correct dictionary-approved uh, definition? Well, the answer is, of course there is, and of course there are associations and food bodies that they're trying to define a sandwich in a specific and correct form. But I like things uh, more open to interpretation, more loosely defined, and um, a sandwich can be cold or at least room temperature snack and have as a filling a piece of meat, a bit of cheese, some chutney, maybe mustard, maybe butter, eaten like this. Could be slightly toasted, it could be a cheese toasty sandwich perhaps, it could be a wrap, it could be a bagel stuffed with something, it could be a round bread or a muffin with uh, egg and bacon and uh, what have you. Could be even a beef burger, a burger. So could that be a sandwich in a sense? I don't, um, I don't discriminate against all this stuff. A bit more open in that respect. Of course, for most of us here in the, at least in the Western uh, Europe, maybe UK, USA, perhaps a bit more, sandwiches are very much associated with supermarkets and the cold packaged in plastic or paper wrapping, sad looking limb and plant tasting, if I may say so, sandwiches for our uh, lunchtime snacks, a triangle sandwich and a packet of crisps, and that's our desk uh, office lunch, the popularity of which uh, increased um, exponentially in the past 30 years or so. So, of course, uh, sandwiches existed um, long before they were named sandwiches. That much is true. In Kent, there is a town, an old medieval town, that lies on the River Stour with a population of about 5,000 people. Historically, quite important uh, port town with the name of Sandwich. Today, though, throughout the world, is a lot more famous and associated with the Earl of Sandwich and the concoction that's attributed to him bit of meat placed between two slices of bread. The popular myth or the popular beginning of, uh, of the history of Sandwich is that um, John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, ordered beef served between slices of bread around 261 years ago. John Montague was a very complex character, quite um, the lad, it seems, and he was one of these people who stayed up all night playing cards. And um, he also had uh, significant um, debts, I believe. The story is that um, the Earl asked um, for a serving of food while he was playing cards. And he didn't want to interrupt uh, the game. So he asked for a particular serving of some beef, some cold cuts of beef between some bread. And... Um, his friend asked uh, to have the same as sandwich. But of course, this is what the, <laughs> the British Sandwich Association uh, tells us. It doesn't mean that it's 100% true. People all over the world and throughout the ages, wherever bread existed as a staple and wherever there were leftovers from uh, the dinner from the day before, they would have made uh, a concoction similar to sandwich. Because it's portable because it's convenient, because it reduces waste, because you're using the bread and the food from the day before 
to feed while you are working in the fields. All these notions existed in most of the agrarian societies. So, yes, it has a promise, a promise of uh, portability and convenience, the notion of a sandwich. Also, it's part of uh, making um, yourself something to eat while you are on a journey, while you're traveling. Could be a walk in the local uh, nature reserve or the mountain or something. Or you might um, stay overnight somewhere or you might be on a train and you'll make yourself a sandwich to carry with you. You're doing the work to feed yourself. And that, that part of the food is important. And in one sense, it's a complete, complete food, all with the convenience of uh, eating it with one hand. I bloody love a sandwich. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I love making them. I love eating them. My favorite sandwich. Yeah, I love, I love a BLT like Tom. Homemade, has to be homemade. Mustard, mayo, bacon, tomato, lettuce. But then I also do love like the simple tomato, mozzarella, basil on some nice bread, olive oil, more room temperature tomatoes, never cold tomatoes. Same with the mozzarella, like room temperature, let it get it out of the fridge a bit. Mm. Yeah, it's a good sandwich, little snack, little merendina after you've had a nap. Okay, uh, got it down to top three. Number three is the um, tuna mayonnaise uh, sandwich. You can just chuck a bit of rocket in there and red onion. The second one is a seasonal sandwich. It's, uh, say, turkey, cranberry, stuffing, that kind of thing. And then number one is a really unhealthy one. It's bacon, not too crispy, peanut butter crunchy uh all of these in white bread by the way i've been thinking about my favorite sandwich for the past few hours and uh i'm gonna say i'm gonna go with my dad's christmas dinner in a boxing day sandwich tasted sourdough with uh whatever meat is less a gammon honey roast gammon chicken stuffing cabbage Brussels sprouts, whatever is left, but then gravy. And then you put the top layer on of bread because it needs to have two sides of bread to be a sandwich, surely. In Roman times, uh, obviously, as in uh, ancient Greece and in, and in other places, uh, the meal times evolved and revolved around... Um, around when people um, had to go to the fields and work and where, did you, where you lived, the type of the year, and so on. So obviously, one of the meals in the ancient Roman time called prandium, it's the one that we can compare it to our modern lunch. And often it just consisted of leftovers from the night before, just cold meat and bread, basically. And that was similar to our modern sandwiches. This is a small meal which we might refer to as a snack uh, nowadays. And I suppose considering that people back then did a lot more manual work, uh, then um, yeah, a sandwich would be a snack, really. In ancient Rome, these uh, offcuts of meat were called tomaculum, and historians believe it was mostly offals uh, used for that. So this meat could be served in stews, and this could also be served typically in a sandwich. A modern descendant of these sandwiches, uh, perhaps, perhaps 
is uh, the La Fritula and the Panino con la Milcha, both of which uh, are found in Sicily. I'm about to try this notorious sandwich. Pane con Milcha. I'm at the heart of Palermo in Ballaro Market and I'm holding this famous sandwich in my hands and I'm about to have the first bite. The look of it is actually basic and gross, but this is why I like it. I'm sure with just two ingredients, the result is going to be really rewarding. Let's have a bite. Mm. Sorry, I had the bite with the microphone closed, but it's delicious. The spleen, which is actually the only ingredient, is so tender and it's not heavy as, at all. It's very sour and lemony. So it's uh, more... Moist? It is moist, yeah. Like an appetizing taste rather than a heavy one. Sorry, I have to hang up for a second to have my second bite. Mm. Salty and juicy, amazing. The bread is white uh, bread in the form of like a, a bun. Mm. And it's just this, bread and spleen. That's amazing, incredible actually. Ballero marketing. And um, for panino con la milcha, the, this meat is cooked in lard and is meant to be, to be eaten hot, while the, the la fritula can be eaten cold. Both are cheap, nutritious meals, common for an ancient Roman, I believe. And this is commonly made with spleen or other offals. When Japan uh, was forcefully taken out from its isolation from the Western world, and in the early presence, in the early stages of the presence of Western food and um, civilization in general, um, obviously Western dishes were domesticated in Japanese culture by adding Japanese ingredients or replacing the original ingredients with Japanese ones. So early 20th century Japanese household literature was full of experimental recipes, such as sandwiches with marinated dry abalone and chopped seaweed, and spinach and soy being curd in mayonnaise sauce. So you see here the influence. So we have the mayonnaise and the rest of the ingredients are quite different from our um, prong cocktail sandwich, let's say. The invention of uh, the refrigerated um, packaged sandwich is very much a British, a modern British invention. Very influential. And uh, I think it goes first to Marks and Spencer's uh, around um, 43 years ago. Like it was the spring of 1980 when Marks and Spencer, the nation's uh, most influential and powerful department store, then at least, began selling packaged sandwiches on the shop floor. You know the ones? Egg and cress, salmon and cucumber, prawn cocktail, just simple triangles of white bread in plastic cartons. Prices started at around 43p. I think today's um, sandwich industry was uh, about anything between 8 and 10 billion pounds, according to what figures you trust. The idea that um, from that 43p sandwiches in 1980 would go to that figure today, it seems a bit outlandish, doesn't it? Of course, I would like to talk about sandwiches also as um, 
something um, open, like an open sandwich, like the Scandinavians do, for example. And that will bring us back to medieval times with the trenchers. So the big open uh, breads where the meat was piled upon and all the juices were running into the bread. And that was either eaten or it was given to the poor or it was used as a plate and so on. That can also qualify a little bit as, um, as something, as a sandwich, in the broader sense, of course. It's very interesting, though, that such an um, easy thing to make at home, easy to prepare and um, open to all possibilities, really. When you open your fridge and you have some leftovers, and you have some cheeses and some vegetables and some spreads and hot sauces and pickles... It's everything you like, really, isn't it? You can make anything you want. You can make the most extravagant, delicious sandwich. And you can make something different every day. My sandwich, my favorite sandwich, I mean, it always changes. I think it's one of these things. It's whatever I have on the day. What I made recently that I really liked, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, actually. Because sometimes food is just fuel, uh, unfortunately. It was a sandwich of... Um, fried smoked buck bacon. The bread was white, a little bit stale, so I toasted it. Feta cheese, delicious Greek uh, barrel-aged feta cheese, and uh, kimchi. So I toasted lightly the bread. I fried the bacon, the buck bacon, and um, then I soaked the bread on the juices in the pan. Place the bacon, I cut a generous amount of feta cheese, I put it on top of the bacon and then I slathered some generous amount of kimchi. And then, of course, the other slice of bread. And it was surprisingly delicious combination. Somehow everything worked really well. So I had the smokiness and the meatiness of the bacon. I had the soft, tangy uh, cheese and uh, the spiciness and sweetness and crunchiness of the kimchi cabbage. And yeah, it was really happy lunch. Other favorite sandwiches include a fried mushroom with a little bit of garlic and um, thyme on a buttered bread, sourdough preferably, with, um, with some basil. And a classic one that I make, and um, a lot of the times I do enjoy it. And occasionally I don't, uh, I guess, depends with the quality of the bacon, but it's, a, it's what I call the BFT. So obviously it's a variation of uh, the BLT. So instead of bacon, lettuce, tomato, I've got bacon, feta, tomato. So obviously it has to be summer, a nice uh, juicy tomato, feta cheese, um, some uh, Greek mountain oregano, and fried bacon. Really good. It was a sandwich that I used to make um, as a teenager when I was working on my mother's uh, canteen in the summers. So when I was helping her with her canteen, um, I used to make um, 11-sys brands for myself, which consisted of smoked bacon, feta, and um, tomato in a panini-style or ciabatta-style bread. I do like sandwiches with uh, roasted vegetables and mozzarella, for example, and basil, lots of extra virgin olive oil. That's another favorite, like, uh, you know, roasted peppers, oborzin, and mozzarella, wild mountain oregano, uh, olive oil, and um, some basil but also bacon, avocado, and a soft uh, boiled egg with some smoked chili flakes. Works very well. Of course, I cannot um, have an episode talking about sandwiches and not don't talk about the Greek sandwiches. And something really Greek, of course, is the gyros, a sandwich, a hot sandwich, 
if you say so, generally on pita. And um, yeah, the gyro sandwich or the ke- any kebab from the Middle East is a delicious, fantastic, complete meal in a sandwich. So I love I love a, a gyros. So thinly sliced, um, crunchy, well uh, grilled pork with onions, tomatoes, and some chips. And of course, your favorite condiments could be mustard and ketchup, or it could be jajeki for the Southern Greeks. And um, yeah, if you are from any other Middle Eastern country or from the Balkans, it could be any mixture of salad, like uh, with cabbage and other bits and uh, pickles and spicy pickled peppers. So yeah, it's, um, it's a complete meal in itself. Another favorite sandwich of mine is um, I would use um, bacon if I have some, or otherwise um, I will omit it completely, but I will grill. So I'll make a sandwich with um, pecorino sardo, perhaps, some semi-dried tomatoes or sun-dried tomatoes if I have some nice juicy ones, um, and um, some basil, some watercress, and um, some spicy some spicy tomato chutney or something. And then that I will grill it. And that's one of my favorite um, hot sandwiches. And of course, cold sandwich, really classic. One that I love uh, to have on a Monday lunchtime from leftovers from Sunday, from Sunday's lunch, beef usually. So I'm going to have sliced, thinly sliced, medium rare beef, horseradish and some watercress on, uh, on a nice baguette perhaps or something like that. I want my order sourdough. I want something crunchy. Uh, so yeah, that's it. Beef, thinly sliced, black pepper, horseradish, lots of watercress, and it's just and that this one is a cold sandwich, and this is just beautiful, and it's easy. So this thing that is so easy to make at home, yet shot to extraordinary heights as a commercial product, that wasn't anything new. That wasn't something that happened forty years ago. But even in Victorian times. The social commentator Henry Mayhew calculated that 436,800 sandwiches, all of them ham, let's mention that, were sold on the streets of London each year. So yeah, that sounds a lot. That sounds like a big number, right? But just one supermarket nowadays, just one supermarket sells this number of sandwiches every 36 hours. It seems like as a nation, we buy around 4 billion sandwiches a year. What makes a good sandwich? What are the secret ingredients to make perfect, delicious, homemade sandwich, but also commercial sandwich too? Obviously, taste is the key. Texture is very important. The temperature plays a role. And of course, fresh bread. And that's um, the physical element. But also, more importantly, it's that the fact that, as I said, You can make a sandwich, any sandwich you want, once you open the door of your fridge. It seems like limitless possibilities can happen. And this is the real genius of the supermarkets, at least some of them, that they offer a mind-bogglingly large variety of uh, sandwiches and um, with all sorts of different types of breads or gluten-free or mayo-free or healthy options and wraps and vegetarian sandwiches and vegan ones and um, low-fat and low-calorie and all the normal ones and meat and fish and cheese and salad and so on and so on. This is my friend Yanis's um, ideal sandwich creation. 
I want the bread to be crispy. Nothing worse than the bread uh, disintegrating in your hands while you're trying to eat the sandwich. Nothing worse than this. And I also like putting pieces of potato crisps for crunchiness. And I love some Worcestershire sauce with cheese sandwiches, especially with extra mature cheddar. Otherwise, I might put um, fish fingers and some something green like a rocket uh, salad. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And this is my friend Alexis, connoisseur of all things that have to do with uh, cured meats and an avid tyrophile and inophile. Hello, hello. I'm not sure why you need this information, but uh, my favorite sandwich is the one I was eating my at our daily soups, you know. So, yeah, if we talk about... Uh, non-cooking hands-only sandwich 
Uh, my favorite has uh, some nice light truffle mayo for the base. Then uh, Roman lettuce, super nice and fresh. Then <laughs> freshly cut uh, turkey pepper, green. You know, the ones that they are not spicy, but they are trying to be. Um, then we are going for the serious stuff. So the dry salami from Lefkava Island is going in. And then you take a lovely, lovely um, matured aged aged uh, raviera cheese and you grate. I should say Cretan, but uh, I'll be honest and I prefer Naxos Island. So at the end you just uh, ground some fresh pepper, black, and that's it. And you enjoy all the flavors, not mixed up things, just a simple sandwich. Now you have two variations on this one, instead of dry salami from Lefkada. I'm also using sometimes ox tongue. This is from Saris, Drama. It's cherry, cherry uh, wood smoked. Or of course uh, uh, the bubble mortadella Emilia Romagna, preferably. And if you go there actually you can find nice truffle mortadella. Yeah, so you don't need the truffle in the mayo, you know what I mean. Uh, now, if you talk about cooking, nothing can beat my traditional dish, pork, neck, shoulder, souvlaki. Uh, the only thing is that I also like horseradish in my mustard. Of course, I never do jatsiki. I'm coming from the north, as you are. Uh, I hope that covers you. Talk to me if you need something else. <laughs> I'm here. Think of just the ham and cheese sandwich, like the one you can make at home. And think how many of us used to make it at home, and yet now it's just easier to, to buy from the supermarket and uh, have this. So once there were thousands and thousands of different varieties of ham and cheese sandwiches, which don't exist anymore. People just buy the same one, the exact same one from the supermarket all the time. And it tastes the same all the time. It's a little bit sad, isn't it? Of course, our dear um, Lord uh, Montague, the Earl of Sandwich, wasn't doing something uh, new, wasn't doing something uh, world-defining and uh, conceptually um, out of this uh, world, or at least out of this world in uh, 17... uh, (laughs) 45 or 50, whenever it was that supposedly ate that uh, first sandwich. We cannot really isolate precise moment that um, humanity started eating the first incarnation of a sandwich. But the Earl of Sandwich toured uh, the Mediterranean as a young man around 1738-1739. And clearly he would have seen people wrapping um, meats and bits of salads and flatbreads and getting filled with different elements throughout, from Italy to the Middle East. One of the first, or even the first sandwich sighting, uh, happens in the diaries of Edward Gibbon, who dined uh, at the Coco Tree Club 
on the corner of St. James Street and Pall Mall in London. And um, on the evening of 24th of November 1762, writes that the respectable body affords every evening a sight truly English. Twenty or thirty of these first men in the kingdom supping at little tables upon a bit of cold meat or a sandwich. A few years later, a French travel writer, Pierre Jean Grosley, supplied the myth beloved by the marketing people ever since that the Earl demanded a bit of beef between two slices of toasted bread to keep him going through a 24-hour gambling binge. Since then, that sealed the Earl's fame. In the definitive biography of Earl of Sandwich, we have the figure of a frail man who lived alone after his wife went mad in 1755 and uh, visitors to his home always remarked that the quality of the food was poor. It's worth remembering that uh, in the 18th century English high society, the main meal of the day was served around 4pm, which probably clashed with his duties in the Admiralty. He most likely came up with a beef sandwich, just in a way of... Uh, keep eating at his desk while he was working. Ever since, sandwich became unstoppable. Louis Eustace Oud, the chef d'hôtel to the Earl of Sefton, acknowledged the power of the new format in his cookbook of 1813. A general spread of sandwiches, of fowl, of ham, of veal, of tongue, and so on. Some plates of pastry and here and there on the table some baskets of fruit. That's a textbook food-to-go offering, in other words could cut the costs of a dinner and dance by three quarters. Of all things in the world, sandwiches have least need of explanation, he wrote. Everyone knows how to make them. More or less. Hi, Tom. You wanted me to tell you about my favourite sandwich, which is a difficult ask because I've got a lot of them, but I'm going to go for a Reuben. But my Reuben's got a couple of wrinkles to it. So you'd have the salt beef and the pickles... I like to make my own sauerkraut, it's a bit more funky than that shop-bought pasteurised business. On white sourdough, it's nice and dense bread. And then instead of the Swiss cheese, the rubbery Emmental or something like that, I would have Lincolnshire poacher, which is a cross between cheddar and Gruyere, so a bit more tangy than a sweet Gruyere. And then the other wrinkle for my Reuben is instead of doing it in a breville, I'd fry it in a pan with loads of butter, loads of buttery goodness, melted cheese, and that'd be lovely. Cheers, Isabella Beaton, Miss Beaton, who uh, wrote one of the famous cookbooks of the 19th century, Miss Beaton's book of household management, had a very <laughs> avant-garde idea of a sandwich when uh, she wrote toast sandwich. So a piece of toast, uh, seasoned of course, <laughs> with salt and pepper, and then between two pieces of bread. Don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit... Uh, boring to me. Of course, for most people who lived in the ex- in extreme poverty, I think that would be the norm, perhaps. For the rich, would be crustless fingers with uh, dainty cucumber sandwiches. For the poor, what one cookbook called mouth distorters. The national objection with sandwiches and the national um, infatuation with a lunch sandwich can also make headlines. There was that infamous uh, Daily Mail headline which asked, of course with capital letters, is there no one left in Britain who can make a sandwich? Question mark. Of course, that was most 
of a result that uh, by that point, 2014, the sandwich industry has become so big and so factory, uh, factory-based, huge factories with repetitive work in cold conditions and so on. Nobody wants to do that. And then, obviously, big um, factories re- relied on immigrant labor. One of the on, one of these companies, Greencourt, started uh, recruiting in Hungary. So that's the reason this headline happened. Incidentally, I don't think it's a coincidence that lunch and sandwich and kind of uh, office uh, lunch at your desk, perhaps, uh, were born sort of at the same time in the same era, and they all seem to be intertwined in one way or another. So both the lunch and the sandwich took off when the working day was beginning to be stretched out and, of course, individualized. So each one of us has a specific task to perform and slowly moving towards the office job of what we know today. If we think about it, there was no need for lunch when dinner was uh, around midday. So that's up until the 17th century, perhaps. So we're talking about like 60, 70, 80 years before Earl of Sandwich. Luncheon was born when dinner was pushed back to early evening. So when we're talking about four, six o'clock or even later from the higher classes, especially. So when they pushed it back, the fashionable society kept on dining later and later. So to put some clear um, blue hours between themselves and the professional class and the merchants who were always considered below them. And of course, when the professional classes wanted to catch up with the aristocracy, with the higher classes, had to adopt their customs in in a sense. So they started eating later and later. So this big gap in the middle appeared between breakfast and dinner. And also for businesses, it was a convenient way to eat while you work. So you don't interrupt your work day. And yeah, the word luncheon appeared as well in our dictionary. And um, initially was never formally defined. Jane Austen seemed to be one of the earliest users of the word. And um, she also talks about the nicest cold luncheon in the world on the end of the journey in Pride and Prejudice. Samuel Johnson, uh, in his 1755 dictionary, deduced that lunch and luncheon were both derived from clutch or clunch and meant as much food as one's hand can hold. So this very thing, the sandwich, then crops up a decade later, as we've seen with our Earl of Sandwich. So sandwiches and desks were immediately intertwined and established a long-standing partnership, one would say, which uh, lasts to this day. So this atomized way of eating at one's uh, desk seems to have started from the late 18th century onwards when um, people started working solo on their solo desks, in a sense, and they're allowed to eat in splendid isolation, in a way, instead of eating with their companions, which etymologically means literally the ones who we serve bread together. So the dining together habit seemed to be slowly but surely extinguished, which uh, sort of leads us to our dinners nowadays, which we usually eat them late in front of the TV on our own. And this is it. This is a short history of the sandwich through the ages. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Do come back to me with your favorite sandwich and how to make it. And if you want to listen to more episodes, remember there's a back catalog with about 70 episodes out there for you to enjoy. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube, on Spotify, on Acast, on Google Podcasts, on Amazon, and on Apple Podcasts, of course, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you want to subscribe for extra amazing, delicious content, go to Patreon and become an exclusive subscriber backer where you get um, some really cool extra content from $3 a month. Thank you. I'm Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Over and out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.